Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. We're going to start off today with a recipe for jalapeno cheddar scones, or scones, depending on how you pronounce them. I say scones. I wore heels to the hospital when I showed up for my induction four weeks ago. Heels and a sundress. Oh, and my mother and I decided to walk there from the doctor's office since it was such a nice day. We only made it 10 blocks, but still. Heels, sundress, a stroll on a lovely September day. I say this not to point out how ridiculous I can be, because really, I believe it points itself out, but to outline this thing I do where I get an absurdly ambitious idea in my head and spend the rest of my time trying to close the gap between the dream and my reality. Hmm, perhaps that didn't make much sense. Let me put it in food terms. Before I had the baby, I attempted to spend some time baking and stashing, no, not practical things like meals to save us from an endless rotation of diner eggs and takeout pad thai. Oh, please no. I made things like treats to woo extra awesome care from labor and delivery nurses and granola bars that our families in the waiting room might enjoy and some date cake we could all enjoy with some fresh baby and coffee the next day. Like I said, absurd. I also imagined that we'd have an influx of visitors in the weeks after we took Jacob home, and realizing I'd have no time to put out my usual spread, decided to ambitiously bake some things we could set out as needed, like banana bread, and lemon cake, and scones. Except I only got to the scones. Well, at least I picked some good ones. Enter the reality of life with a newborn, and sure enough, baked goods are the last thing on our minds. And of course, we'd forgotten that these scones were stashed in the freezer until an unusually calm Sunday this past weekend when two friends came by to meet the cutest baby ever baked. An objective assessment, of course, especially once tiny elbow-patched Fair Isle sweaters are involved. On Sunday, and I wanted to find something, besides wine that is, that we could snack on. The pantry presented me with some sorry options, wasabi peas, stale raisins, and half a box of Jelly Belly Sours, anyone? But there in the freezer were these forgotten scones. I baked them, still frosty, until they were puffed, golden, and made our apartment smell like a fondue pot. That is a good association, trust me. And even though we were ridiculously overtired, and even though the North Fork wine I'd been so eagerly anticipating only put me in a coma, and even though Jacob managed to, shall we say, christen, the guest who had the misfortune to witness a diaper change, and perhaps this wasn't the kind of calm gathering I had pictured in my late pregnancy haze, it was delicious and hilarious, and I realized now I wouldn't want it any other way. Here's the recipe for jalapeno cheddar scones. You'll need, this is adapted by Peter Olayer at Calexio Carne Asada in Brooklyn via New York Magazine. It's worth noting that I had my doubts about this recipe. This world is overflowing with terrible scones, and after trying too many bad ones, I came to the conclusion that the only good scones, the ones you should should bother making or eating ever are these dreamy creamy ones and there's a link on smittenkitchen.com however this recipe manages to be different it contains eggs 
and yet it is still delicious. But considering the possibility that there are two good scone recipes on earth makes my sleepy head hurt. Thus, I will reconcile this another time. For now, just know that these are good, very good. You'll need two cups of all-purpose flour, one tablespoon of baking powder, one teaspoon salt, eight tablespoons, that's one stick or four ounces of cold butter, diced, one half cup of heavy cream, three eggs, divided, one quarter pound of sharp cheddar cheese, diced, two small jalapenos peppers, minced. I whipped out and used only one to find my scones entirely heat-free. Preheat your oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. In a small skillet, melt one half tablespoon of butter and saute the jalapenos in it until soft, about two minutes. Let them cool, then place them in a small bowl with the cheddar cheese and coat them with one tablespoon of the flour. Combine the remaining flour with the baking powder and salt. Cut in the remaining butter with a pastry blender, fork, or two knives until the butter bits are pea-sized. Lightly whip two of the eggs and cream and add to the flour-butter mixture. Using a wooden spoon, fold the mixture until it begins to come together. Add the cheddar jalapeno mixture to the dough and mix until everything is incorporated. Turn out the dough onto a well-floured surface and knead gently for less than one minute. Pat the dough out to a three-quarter to one-inch thickness and either cut into eight triangles or the shape of your choice with a biscuit cutter. Make an egg wash by beating the remaining egg with a teaspoon of water and brush the scones with the egg wash and place on a parchment-lined or well-oiled baking sheet. Bake for 25 minutes or until golden brown. I think those sound absolutely delicious. But what also sounds delicious? Alex's mom's stuffed cabbage. I have been promising you my mother-in-law's recipe for stuffed cabbage or galupsti, sorry, galupsi, galupsi, <laughs> I'm going to spell it, G-O-L-U-B-T-S-Y, which was her mother's recipe for stuffed cabbage for ages. But you know what's even sadder about how long it's taken me to get to this? If I can remember correctly, I jotted this recipe down on a page from my planner while sitting in the back seat as we drove to check out some wedding locations, and Alex and I got married in 2005. And really, I have all sorts of places to blame for how long it has taken me to actually make the recipe at home. The first is Neptune on First Avenue, only my favorite place to sit outside for beers in the summertime. And if you think that stuffed cabbage can't taste good after a few Polish beers on a warm night, you obviously haven't tried it yet. With a side of kielbasa and pierogies, thank you. The second is Veselka, also in the East Village. This is where I go for my winter stuffed cabbage fix. Also, cabbage soup. Small hands, smell like cabbage. Nobody else gets that, do they? And the third is Alex's mom herself, who often brings us extra that she's made, rendering it completely unnecessary for me to make any effort whatsoever to decipher my four-year-old notes. Alas, this week it brutally, turned, turned brutally cold and officially time to break it out. Of course, my notes made no sense, but fortunately, with some phone counseling, I think I did all right for a newbie. What I forgot to do, dry the cabbage leaves, led to a too watery sauce, and also I under-seasoned it. Oh, I hate that. 
But it's not like you could test uncooked beef, and yet it was still totally delicious. And I love it when you try to break recipes and they still come out well. I consider it a good omen. Here's the recipe for Alex's mom's stuffed cabbage. One head of Savoy cabbage, one pound of ground beef, one small to medium onion, chopped small, two tablespoons of olive oil, one carrot shredded, one celery stalk thinly sliced, one parsnip shredded, one half cup of uncooked white rice, one to two tablespoons of tomato paste, three to four cups of your favorite simple tomato sauce, tomato juice, or V8. Cut the core out of the cabbage but leave it whole. Place it with the empty core area facing up in a large bowl. Boil a small pot of water and pour the water over the cabbage and let it sit for 10 minutes. Heat the oil in a saute pan. I like to use the large one. I will cook the final dish in a 12 inch saute pan to save dishes. Cook the onions until they are soft. Add the carrot, celery, and parsnip and saute them for a couple of extra minutes until they are soft. Season the mixture with, dry, with salt and pepper and transfer it to a bowl and let it cool a bit. Mix in the meat, rice, and tomato paste and season again with salt and pepper. Drain the head of cabbage, pull off large leaves, cut out the large vein. If the leaf is very large, you can make two rolls from each. If it is smaller, you can cut the vein out partially and pull the sides to overlap before you roll it into one roll. Pat the leaves dry with towels and roll about one quarter to a third cup of filling in each leaf, depending on the size of your leaf, and arrange in a large wide pot. Pour in enough juice or sauce to cover the rolls. Bring to a boil and reduce the heat, letting them simmer covered on the stove and on low for about 45 minutes. Serve immediately. If the sauce has thinned a bit, you can heat up any additional sauce that you didn't use and pour it over as you serve the rolls. Our next recipe is for chocolate olive oil cake. I was thinking about having this one for last, but why have dessert last? Two weeks from today, my second cookbook, Smitten Kitchen Every Day, Triumphant and Unfussy New Favorites, will be leaving warehouses to reach bookstores or perhaps your front door if you've pre-ordered the book. I cannot believe it's so close now. Last month, I shared the trailer for the book and told you all about the book tour that begins the day that the book comes out, and I promised additional cities would be added. Well, today's the day. The book tour page is, there's a link here at smittenkitchen.com. Um, now includes Minneapolis, Atlanta, Montreal, Kansas City, Denver, Boulder, Tulsa, Maplewood, New Jersey, and an additional book signing in New York City. In addition to the events already planned in Boston, Toronto, Chicago, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Dallas, Austin, Houston, Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, and Los Angeles. So here we go for... A year or so ago, I got really obsessed with the idea of making a chocolate olive oil cake for fall. Why is it a fall and not a spring or summer cake? I cannot answer this. I can only tell you that I've made one that I've read about, but it ended up somewhat underwhelmed. I'd been asked before what, to, what I do when I bake something that comes out all wrong, and I think it's important that I eradicate any thread of an esteemed opinion you might have left, from, left me with. 
I have a tantrum. I stomp out of the kitchen in a huff, or at least the mental equivalent of it, and I'm crabby and cranky and resent the recipe that should have been better and the loss of time I could have been doing anything else like cleaning out my closet. Let's pretend I wouldn't rather make a hundred other cakes before getting around to it. But when I get past that, I rarely take another stab at it again the next day. We need some space. It's usually later, i.e. whenever the craving strikes again, or I think I have a fresh way to go about it. This time, it took a year, and it was a little bit of both. The craving arrived because it was fall, which again, I cannot explain it, but it might have something to do with a subtle, earthier quality of olive oil and parts in chocolate, especially when flecked with sea salt. It feels fallish, even if the weather outside is defiantly summerish. Separately, someone told me about his family's go-to chocolate cake that's made for every birthday, that's plush and perfect and never fails. The recipe had the title Wacky Cake on it. I had never heard of a wacky cake. So it turns out I am among the few. Wacky Cake, aka Cockeyed Cake, if you are a Peg Brocken fan, which really who is not, or Depression Cake, is a single layer chocolate cake that has seven ingredients, all of which are in your kitchen right now, and takes five minutes to put together. Some versions are even mixed in the baking pan. I am completely burying the lead, the lead lead here, but it's also vegan, as in butter and milk free. And this is the crazy part. It is egg free as well. No flax, eggs, or canned bean liquid required. The chocolate glaze here is not traditional, but I couldn't resist. It too is vegan if you use dairy free chocolate chips. Typically, it's fairly thin, and the proportion of cocoa flour to flour is relatively low. It yields a brown cake, but not one chocolatey enough to please the likes of me. I increased the proportions of the cake to make it taller, and tweaked the cocoa to be more dominant, and ended up with a nearly pitch black cake. Typically, any oil is used, but I found in this cake the perfect chance to realize my chocolate olive oil cake dreams, in a cake that I think we should all stop what we're doing and make right now. Because if there are people out there whose Thursdays are not improved by a thick slice of perfect chocolate cake, well, I haven't met any. Here's the recipe, chocolate olive oil cake. It serves eight to 12 and it takes a total of 45 minutes. The cake base is vegan and makes for an excellent layer cake. The glaze is vegan if you use dairy-free chocolate chips. I made it with water, not coffee, and can promise you it is still full of flavor. With coffee, I'd probably be in heaven. So for the cake, you'll need one and a half cups of all-purpose flour, three quarters cups of unsweetened cocoa, any variety, sifted if lumpy, one and a half teaspoons of baking soda, one half teaspoon of fine sea salt, three quarters cup of granulated sugar, three quarters cup of dark brown sugar, one half cup of olive oil, one and a half cups of water or coffee, one tablespoon of cider vinegar or white vinegar. For the glaze, you'll need three quarters cups of semi-sweet chocolate chips and two tablespoons of cocoa powder, three tablespoons of olive oil, and one tablespoon of light corn syrup for shine and a pinch or two of flaky sea salt. To make the cake, you're going to heat your oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit, 
Line the bottom of a 9-inch round cake pan with a fitted round of parchment paper and coat the bottoms and sides with nonstick cooking spray. Whisk together the flour, cocoa, baking soda, salt, and granulated sugar in the bottom of a large mixing bowl. Add brown sugar and olive oil and whisk to combine. Add water and vinegar and whisk until smooth. Pour into the prepared pan. Bake for 30 to 35 minutes or until the top is springy and a tester inserted in the center comes out with just a few sticky crumbs, but not wet or loose batter. Cool the cake in the pan on a wire rack for 10 minutes, then cut around it with a knife to ensure it is loosened and flip it out onto a cooling rack to cool the rest of the way. Make the glaze. You're going to combine the chocolate, cocoa powder, olive oil, corn syrup, and salt in a medium bowl and microwave it to melt in 15 to 30 second increments, stirring between each until just melted. Then you're going to whisk until smooth. Pour over completely cooled cake and use a spatula to gently nudge it down the sides. The cake keeps at room temperature for two to three days and up to a week in the fridge. On day four in the fridge, ours was as moist as day one, which was basically a miracle. Next, we're going to have a recipe for, oh, I don't know, let's go for the corn coconut soup. That sounds different. I didn't say it was logical. I think we know better than to expect clear, sound reasoning here. But when cookbooks decided that cauliflower could be pizza crusts or that black beans could go in brownies, I'm sorry, but I checked out. But this summer in particularly, as, as plant-based diets are on ever more agendas, I've seen so many creative uses of corn as ribs, twice, corn butter, and now a surge interest in a longtime restaurant kitchen staple, corn stalks. And I love it. I'm all in. A few weeks ago, People Magazine ran my blueberry muffin recipe, and on my way to find it, I ran into this winning corn coconut soup from beloved Top Chef Season 17 winner, Melissa King, and I had to make it right away. It absolutely delivered, because you first make a corn stock from corn cobs, ginger, onion, and water. Soup is completely vegan and more deeply corn-flavored than it would be from a mixed vegetable stock. From there, you saute the kernels, more onion and garlic, simmer it with a stock and coconut milk, blend it, and finish it with lime juice. The resulting soup is mellow and delicious. The pickiest human in my family not only ate it, she vocally reconsidered her previously held stance on not liking my cooking and requested it for lunch the next day. I am still recovering from that. The rest of us had fun with garnishes chili oil, cilantro, lime, and because we couldn't choose both crispy and pickled shallots. The soup would also be good with croutons and diced roasted sweet peppers, this is King's suggestions, and or toasted coconut flakes. There's such a coziness to the soup, I want to pack it up for a friend or stash some in the freezer for later this winter. I can't wait to see what you do with it. Corn coconut soup. Here's the recipe. It serves four, it takes two hours, and the source, it's adapted just barely from Melissa King. And if you're in doubt about the size of your corn cobs, round up. 
If you're going to go through a lot of corn this summer, I'd make an extra batch or two of this stock and freeze it. It would be wonderful in risottos, soups, or anywhere that you'd use a vegetable broth. You'll need two large yellow onions, three quarts of water, four large ears or five medium-large fresh corn, kernels cut from cobs, and the cobs reserved, one one-inch piece of ginger, peeled and thinly sliced, four garlic cloves, sliced, two tablespoons of canola, safflower, or another neutral oil, two and a half teaspoons of kosher salt, plus more to taste, one uh, 13.5 ounce can of full-fat coconut milk, well stirred, and juice of half a lime. To garnish, you need fresh cilantro leaves, lime wedges, toasted coconut flakes, chili oil, and pickled shallots and or crispy shallots. To make the cornstalk, you're going to thinly slice one of the onions and set aside. Cut the second onion into quarters and place the onion quarters, water, corn cobs, and ginger in a large pot. Bring to a boil over high heat and reduce to a medium and simmer for one hour, uncovered, to encourage it to reduce and concentrate. Pour the stock through a strainer into a heat-proof bowl and discard the solids. Season it with two teaspoons of salt. To make the soup, you're going to heat two tablespoons of oil in a large pot over medium. Add the corn kernels, sliced onion, garlic, and one-half teaspoon of salt. Cook, stirring occasionally until the onion is translucent and soft, about 15 minutes, and then add four cups of the reserved cornstalk. Bring to a boil over high. Reduce the heat to medium and simmer for 20 minutes, and add coconut milk and lime juice and remove from the heat. Working in batches, pour the mixture into a blender and secure the lid, but remove the centerpiece to allow steam to escape or you can use an immersion blender in the pot as I did. Process until very smooth. Pour soup through a strainer into a pot. I didn't do this, but I wish I had, and discard the solids. To serve, you're gonna ladle it into bowls and top with garnishes of your choice. So for the garnishes, to make a tiny batch of chili oil, you're gonna place two tablespoons of crushed red pepper in a small heat-proof bowl Heat one quarter cup of neutral oil in a small skillet over medium high until it's shimmering and then pour over the red pepper. Let stand 10 minutes and pour through a fine mesh strainer discarding the pepper flakes and dot over the soup with caution. To pickle the shallots, you're gonna thinly slice two large shallots, add to a bowl with two tablespoons of red wine vinegar and two tablespoons of cold water one half teaspoon sugar and a slightly heaped one quarter teaspoon of kosher salt. Set in the fridge until it's needed. The shallots will be very lightly pickled by the time you're done making the soup, but if you can give it one to two hours in the fridge, they will be more so. To make the crispy shallots, thinly slice two large shallots in a small skillet, heat one half inch of oil over medium heat. Once the oil is hot, add the shallots to the skillet, breaking them into rings as you place them. Cook until deeply golden, watching them carefully, stirring occasionally, and then transfer them to a paper towel lined plate. Sprinkle immediately with salt. They will continue to darken after being re removed from the skillet. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. 
My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.